for the young generation it's very uh, important I think to, to realize that wine is just like people you, you have to meet a lot of them before finding your friends so of course the, the, the road to the wine world is not that easy you, you'll have a lot of bad experiences but when you have great experiences This is officially Earth Month on the Art of Living Extraordinarily, and we're kicking it off with a man whose profession and passion is to work with Mother Nature almost every single day. He is Jean-Marie Fourier, and he was born into a winemaking legacy. He's a fourth-generation vigneron of Domaine Fourier, which acts as guardian to 10 hectares of vineyard, comprised of vines between 60 and 100 years old, spread across Gevray-Jambertan, one of the most iconic winemaking villages in the heart of Burgundy, which is a region in central France that has a winemaking history that dates back nearly 2,000 years. Jean-Marie's wines are some of the most brilliant and sought-after wines on the planet. Wine aficionado or not, you'll enjoy this conversation because Jean-Marie is a biologist, one who studies the science of life more than he considers himself an enologist, one who studies the science of wine and winemaking. He says that it's so much more exciting to know about life in general than just about wine. And it's this bigger picture passion for life and the way life works that seems to be Jean-Marie's secret ingredient and what has helped Domaine Fourier fulfill its towering potential. And also why I was so excited to have him come on the podcast. To give you a little backstory on where today's podcast is coming from, I will need to also introduce you to my good friend, Jerry Murdoch. Jerry and I connected and became friends through our mutual love of adventure and human potential. His day job has been investing in innovative technology companies, such as Twitter, Snapchat, Nest, and Flipboard. Jerry is a man of passion, and besides helping to build these technology companies that change and positively impact business and social practice, he also loves to learn about himself, life, and connect with friends through skiing, biking, tennis, and wine. Jerry's wine collection is extraordinary, and so is his generosity in sharing it. Because of his passion for wine, Jerry knows the story behind every bottle of wine he owns. And through his storytelling, he's able to transport the dinner table to the time, the place, the people, and the climate that all influenced and contributed to that bottle, which creates a mindfulness practice that allows for a deeper connection and fuller experience. A few years ago, I was able to join Jerry and Gina, Jerry's wife and also my good friend, in Burgundy for their annual fall road biking tour. On that trip, we visited Domaine Fourier and we were able to do a tasting with Jean-Marie in his cellar. I'll never forget that day because when he described his winemaking philosophy, it literally brought tears to my eyes. It was such a metaphor for life and I could tell that it wasn't something Jean-Marie had read in a book or learned in school. It was knowledge he says that our ancestors lived by and it's a way of life that he practices daily. Jean-Marie has dedicated himself to allowing Mother Nature, the vines, the terroir, and the vintage to express themselves fully, and his job is to intervene as little as possible. This sounds like a nice philosophy, but when your name and livelihood depend on the quality of your wine, it could be easy to grow fearful and try to force a certain outcome. But Jean-Marie understands that it often takes more discipline to surrender that fear and allow nature to do its thing. 
a bigger concept that we can all continue to be reminded of and practice in our own daily lives. Besides that, two other big concepts that came up for me in this podcast are the importance of pleasure in our daily lives and good company too. I think we can all agree that a great bottle of wine shared with good friends can bring us pleasure while also celebrating friendship. One other thing, I did want to just give everyone a heads up. There are some points in the podcast, particularly in the first half of the podcast, where Jean-Marie sort of gets into the technicalities of winemaking, where he talks about nitrogen and yeast and copper. Um, But hang in there because Jean-Marie really is an alchemist and he's talking about these elements, but then he's able to wrap it back up into the bigger picture around a life lesson or a bigger, larger theme that we can all apply in our own lives. So hang in there when things get a little bit technical because there is a reason behind it. Thank you, Alex Supply Co., which is a sustainable lifestyle company I started with my husband. Alex actually was founded when Chris found himself standing over a sink full of smelly, reusable water bottles, incredibly frustrated because these things are impossible to clean, especially when you put smoothies and lemon water in them like we do. That's when an idea hit him. Let's create a reusable water bottle that opens in the middle so you can actually clean it out. Makes sense, right? Just like that, with one small change, a massive problem was solved. And because we truly believe it's our everyday choices that add up to an extraordinary life, the name Alex stands for Always Live Extraordinarily. Besides Alex Bottle, we've recently released some other new incredible reusable products to help you live sustainably on the journey towards living your extraordinary. And right now you can get 20% off on your purchase at alexbottle.com with code Gretchen. This episode is also sponsored by Dragonfly June Kombucha. Dragonfly June is an organic effervescent probiotic tea that is absolutely delicious. It's literally my favorite drink right now. My good friend Jacqueline launched this company and her June is handcrafted in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley in small batches using high quality organic ingredients and local Colorado honey. Kombucha is everywhere these days because it's really popular. Most people don't know the difference though between June and kombucha and there is a difference. So here's the difference. Kombucha is made with black tea and sugar while June, I have to say, might be a little bit better. It's made with green tea and honey, so no cane sugar, and you get all of the health benefits of green tea and honey in addition to the healthy acids and probiotics from the June kombucha. Not only that, but drinking June helps to support your local bee populations and helps to keep our local beekeepers in business. Dragonfly June's flavors are composed of organic, fair trade, and ethically harvested tea, organic herbs, filtered Rocky Mountain water, and local honey. So there is so much intention put into this very delicious drink that is not only good for you, but it's good for the earth. Drink June and be well. Check it out at dragonflyjune.com. June is J-U-N. And if you live in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley, look for it on the shelves at Natural Grocers, Clark's Market, and local Aspen retail outlets. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jean-Marie Fourier and Jerry Murdoch. Jerry, thanks to you, I have such an appreciation for wine now. I not only have been able to taste some of your amazing wines, but Jerry has brought us to the very place. We've road-biked around your 
vineyards and um, I've gained such a bigger appreciation for everything now. Um, and I'll never forget the moment where we were wine tasting with you in your cellar and you were talking about your winemaking philosophy and it literally, we always joke about it, but it made me cry because it was, it's so beautiful um, how you talk about wine is, it's a bigger picture and it's more about life. And I could really relate to everything you were talking about, even though I knew nothing about winemaking myself. So when I was conceiving the idea of this very podcast, um, I thought about one day being able to have this very conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, I can't believe it's happening right now. I didn't think it was going to happen this soon, a month in. So thank you. You're welcome. So Jerry, I want to start with you since... Um, you're the reason this is all happening today. Yeah. How did you get into wine? Because you're a man of many passions. I would have to say the reason that we are great friends is because we mm. love to adventure. We love to ski. Skiing is one of your passions. Um, wine is one of your passions. Road biking and tennis, right? Yeah. Um, but, but wine is maybe one of your greatest passions. Yeah, well, I think... Um... I was working my way through university as a waiter and we used to have wine selling contests in this nice restaurant and um, I noticed that a lot of first dates would come into a restaurant and if I recommended wine, the date usually went better. Um, so I had a little familiarity with it but the real game changer was I was on a date in, in a restaurant called Chanticleer in Nantucket when I was 30 years old and uh, the sommelier brought me a, a, a bottle of French red wine that was extraordinary in the way it evolved and changed. And so it caught my attention. And as a 30-year-old, you know, I was always in a hurry to make things happen. The wine made me slow down and appreciate what are these flavors I'm getting. And all of a sudden, I started slowing down looking at the food I was eating and then started looking at the date I was with. And, you know, she became more interesting and I suppose I became more interesting because it was just we were a little more in the moment and present. Um, and then I discovered Burgundy in 2004, um, a friend of mine, Richard Betts, uh, said we should go over there, we could meet some of the winemakers, and I had had Burgundy wine, but I, I didn't understand it, and then visiting the place, you realize that more than anything, the wines of Jean-Marie Fourier are about a special place, the vineyard itself, what the French call terroir, you know, it's this sort of magical Thing, which is the, not only the land, but the but the the aspect of the land, the amount of sun, the amount of water, and this sense of place which comes through in the glass. And what happens is the wine changes over time, and so this evolution of the glass gives you more of a feeling of place. Well, riding bicycles was my way of discovering the land and, and discovering the people in the villages, and it was so romantic to be you know, in the fall, at the end of the season, seeing the change and experiencing this amazing product, which is part of the food, you know, which is part of what you have to stay healthy. As long as you don't drink too much of it, you know, it's a pretty healthy thing. And what I learned about it, if I said today, if someone said, show me the place in the world where man and nature has found a great balance for sustainability, to me, it would be the Cote de Bone and the Cote Nuit, 
this place, and you could say Beaujolais, you could say other places in the Burgundy region, Chablis. So those are all places in Burgundy. All places in Burgundy, and all places where for basically 2,000 years, man and nature have had a balance. If you go like in where Jean-Marie's wines are in the Côte Nuit, they don't, they, they don't grow vines on the tops of the hills. They let it be wild because they know they need the insects to come and, and, and we need that connection, you know, in the vineyard. So the insects provide a lot of, uh, you know, um, part of the, this life cycle of the plant. You know, they're in there helping pollinate the flowers. And so the tops are, are wild, you know, and then you have the vineyards and you have this balance between the two that has worked for 2,000 years. And the result is some of the greatest wine in the world and some of the happiest people in the world. I think the, peop the thing I noticed about... Um, being in Burgundy is that it's all about living. It's about enjoying your life and being entrepreneurs in a way because they're, they're deciding when to get up in the morning and when to go to work. No one else is telling them when to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's something I resonate with having invested in entrepreneurs all my life and been one. So for me, it was like home. And what drew you, first of all, how did you meet Jean-Marie and what drew you to, to his wines specifically? Well, I, um, about a decade ago, someone introduced me to something called Griot Chambertin, which is maybe one of the great wines in the world, but not as well known as the other famous wines of Burgundy, because um, it's a very small little place, it's a, and it's a, it's a little cold place, its aspect is sort of a northerly facing, and it's a, and I, and then someone introduced me to a 1990 Joseph Roti um, Griot Chambertin. I said, this is magical. Who else makes this wine? Mm -hmm. And I just purchased a bottle of, of his 2005 Grouache Chambertin, maybe the year 2008. And I said, wow, this is unbelievable. Who is this guy? And I wanted to meet Jean-Marie because the wines had a certain energy that comes from this balance in the wine that was a signature to me. And um, so I was able to meet him uh, in San Francisco at a dinner. And we sat down and chatted, and uh, I, I think I um, remember that dinner very, very well in San Francisco. And then we came and did a tasting with him, and I was mesmerized just like you were. Yeah, how can you not be? So, Jean-Marie, um, a big part of this podcast, as we've talked about, is about highlighting people who've had the courage to pursue a dream, a passion, a vision... You were born into this winemaking legacy. Um, so your story is, is different. You were born into something that you were supposed to be passionate about. So in the beginning, were you passionate about making wine? And how did you come to be the, uh, the head of Domaine Fourier? Um, no, first of all, I didn't want, that was the last things I wanted to do, working with my family. And uh, for the people uh, who are working with their, with their family, not, we know, understand exactly what I'm talking about. There's nothing any harder in, in the world than working with your own family. Christmas, you have a very different relationship <laughs> than, during the, rest of, uh, than uh, during the rest of the year with other people. And uh, my main intention, I've always had passion for flying, so I actually was studying at the age of 16. Uh, I started to get my flying license uh, the day of my birthday of the 17. I was the youngest French pilot of France. 
and then uh, came that stage of deciding uh, was I going to pursue on, on the professional uh, license, which by the time I started, I met a lot of friends who were already professional pilots, and as they had to finance their own license, uh, they were covered by loans, no jobs at the end. So I thought, well, is it really the path I want to go? Just being so young, already have a load on my shoulders and no jobs at the end. So uh, it was not at the beginning by passion, but a bit more by obligation, thinking I've got a safe job by coming back to the winery. But uh, as a matter of fact, for the first four years, uh, I didn't stop arguing with my father. And uh, at some stage I decided uh, that having a, an experience away from the, the family business uh, can only be good for me and then at the time uh, I was not really able to speak any proper English in the meantime so the opportunity has been given to me to come and work in Oregon uh, for the main drum in uh, 1993 uh, and uh, sometimes distance from your roots uh, are really good as a matter of experience for you to realize and understand where you are coming from mm. and what you've got in your hands. So it was a real and true revelation for me uh, to sort of understand, uh, and it's a paradox, but to understand what Burgundy was about because as long as I was living there, I, I, I didn't saw it. Yeah, you couldn't, because uh, you were it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, somehow I think my father got afraid to never see me coming back. So one of those mornings I was in, in Oregon, my father, after six months, called me back and said, uh, uh, look, do you want to come back and, and take over the domain? Uh, you'll be in charge of everything, except the tractors. They will always remain mine. <laughs> What was it about the tractors, do you think? <laughs> well, because his, his entire life, the last things he wanted to do was to take over the domain uh, right. also. So he was born in 1943 and, and post-war, it was this, uh, the generation of, of people which uh, have been forced to take over some job, but not necessarily the job they wanted to make. So uh, it was the obligation to take over the, the domain and it, my father's passion has always been mechanics. Mm. So uh, still at today the, the deal is still running, he's still uh, enjoying at the age of 74 driving his tractor and uh, I'm in charge uh, of a winery since 1994. It was very challenging at the time because... And you're only 23, right? Uh, exactly. It's I was very I was, young. Yeah, it was very young and very unusual for Burgundy. Uh, as most of the, the fathers normally would keep the domain until they are retiring. But actually my father, who was working since the age of 14, uh, decided to, to, to leave me making my own mistakes uh, in my early stage, which was uh, uh, really good for me to sort of find my identity. And uh, as the time went through, uh, the, the passion really grew up with it. And can you explain to people who don't understand, because for me, this was confusing for a long time. So you are Domaine Fourier, but within Domaine Fourier, you have lots of different plots. Could, yeah. you, could you explain it for us? <coughs> yeah, well, overall, the domain is 22 acres, uh, split on 71 different parcels, uh, and uh, in 12 different appellations. So... 
our scale is not even to speak uh, acres. We even have a smaller uh, scale, which in, in Burgundy we would call ouvre, which is normally the size to produce around one barrel of wine, um, and uh, which uh, is around the, the size of 428 square feet. So it, it seems very small, very tiny, but uh, that's the way Burgundy through its history has been uh, divided. Yeah. And so what was that like for you to be given this domain at 23? Did you feel pressure, expectations? Did you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders? How did you, how did you feel in the beginning? Well, it, were, it would have been easy because through the, the previous experience I had, uh, having had the privilege to work with Henri Jaillet, working in Oregon for the Medra, or doing several vintage with my father, the temptation to, to just uh, make a replica of what I've learned was very easy, but actually my intention was just to, to remain true to myself uh, and, and making the wine which would reflect the, the, the way I like to enjoy and drink them. And what is that? So, the entire idea for me, because uh, the image of a reputation got really heavily damaged in the 80s uh, by Mr. Parker, when I took over the domain, the situation in 1994 was over five vintage in stock in the cellar. Nobody was there to buy any wines. Uh, I didn't, couldn't afford a car, so I was borrowing my parents' car to drive up to Belgium to sell the, my parents' wine for very cheap, just to make some space in the cellar, and driving back at, at night because I just couldn't afford an hotel. And then, um, at the beginning, I thought, right, I, I'm going to start making my own wine, then I have no customers to buy them. So if I don't sell it, I'll have to drink it. So I'm going to make wine the way I like to, to drink mm. and the way I like to share to share it. And which is, is still uh, in, in my DNA today, it is really to keep these ideas that uh, wine is about sharing. And for me, I, I still make the wine the way I like and the way I, I like to share it because I couldn't speak with any enthusiasm about something I wouldn't like to drink for myself. Mm -hmm. So it's about sharing and last night you talked about um, you talked about it's like music. You, it's something that you never get tired of. It's, uh, it took me a very long time to sort of try to have an analogy of comparison uh, with that definition of terroir, because it still is something very mystical for a lot of people. Yes, could you explain <coughs> what that is? So for, for me, for me the, the, maybe the closest or simple analogy I've, I found was really comparing with, with music where the author will probably be the soil, the composer, the compositor will, will, will be the great variety, and the interpreter, the person who will give that song, uh, will be the, the vineyard or the winemaker. Uh, so there will be different interpretation to a song, like there could be a different interpretation with the same land and the same soil. Uh, and then on top of that, you could add even a fourth parameter, which uh, in, in music, there would be the acoustic uh, of the room, which uh, in, in the wine making, it's gonna be the vintage, the weather we had will have a different resonance 
to, uh, to, the, to the, the sound and the intensity the wine will, will get. So for me, it's really this combination where for me, I've really tried to, uh, through the legacy dating of 2000 years, to try to hide as much as possible a style of winemaking and to let express as much as possible uh, what the soil, the vineyard and the sun can, can, can through that conjunction uh, end up in a glass. So for me, it's, it's been really important uh, not to put too much ego or myself in a bottle, but much more my region, my place and my vineyards uh, in, into the bottle. And, and so on that same note, um, in Burgundy, it seems like biodynamic wine is very popular now. Um, could you explain all of the different techniques that are out there in Burgundy? and why you've chosen to go the way that you go? <clears throat> I think we, we, we've seen historically a certain evolution, but definitely the era of the 80s, uh, people started to use a, a chemical in, in an excessive way. And then the decade of the 90s has been really focused uh, about purely winemaking, and people so, were starting to forget the most important things, the vineyards, where it was coming from. And uh, some, uh, some people uh, like Anne-Claude Leflame, for example, at the end of the 90s, beginning of 2000, have really refocused the attention through the biodynamic about understanding and, and refocusing about our land. Uh, and I think it's been a real uh, shake for Burgundy uh, for people who was thinking about the pressing, the, the winemaking, uh, inoculating with yeast or not, and all of it, suddenly thinking, wait a minute, let's not think about winemaking, let's think about our vineyards. And uh, biodynamic has been a real dynamic to rethink about our land. But what is really important to understand is, as a part of the question, uh, I tend to believe that we are not discovering anything with biodynamic. We are just rethinking like our grandfathers. Mm. So it's about this balance, about marketing uh, arguments. Yeah. Where for me, I'm not trying to revendicate any biodynamic things. The idea is more to think the way I grew up with the references of, of my grandma, uh, which I was mentioning last night. Yeah. Uh, she never had a car and she used to farm all her vegetables. And all these vegetable, vegetables from her garden, she knew was going to end up in her mouth. So she's been the most respectful person without any religion of farming, but just doing uh, as little as possible uh, intervention on it for them to be as natural as possible. But if anything was coming, she was doing what needed to be done to save it. Otherwise, she wouldn't have any food in her plate. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the, the, the right way to, to, to look at it. Uh, because there is uh, some time uh, through extreme religion also some, some parameters which uh, people don't necessarily always see. 
the idea of being very extreme sometime in biodynamic, you do not allow yourself to use some specific chemicals, which means you will increase uh, the level of some other chemicals. Mm -hmm. For example, copper. Uh, and copper, which has been used historically for a very long time, but we do know, for example, that the, the soil, uh, and I'm sorry, I will speak in a European scale, but the, the soil cannot, the batteries of the subsoil cannot digest more than seven kilos of copper per hectare per year. Mm -hmm. And if you are uh, in, in biodynamic, some people are very careful and respect that. But depending on, on the vintage and the, the pressure by the disease, you can easily go above this limit and, and being three times above it, which means actually you're going to pollute more the soil by an excess of copper mm. than anything else. Which is why I think the most important thing is it's not about uh, being extremist in any religion. It's like everything in life. It's a matter of balance. Mm. And I think in the US, and Jerry, you kind of spoke to this too, um, in the U.S., the way I've grown up is I see, see us sort of taking things and like thinking about a hospital and sterilizing everything yeah. and no bacteria anywhere, anywhere, and we're finding that that's actually, that's not healthy. Right, it's because people don't understand that, look, I mean, bacteria is part of our lives. Um, I think the average human being has somewhere like maybe close to 4 trillion human cells and about 39 trillion bacteria cells. And it's particularly important in the gut. This is what's called the microbiome. And if you treat the land like a living thing, like yourself, mm -hmm. right? So you want to make sure the bacteria is in balance in the land. So too much copper as a metal might disturb the balance in terms of what bacteria grows, right? And you need to have, the bacteria are little organisms, microbiota. I know that if you took an average, you know, gram of, uh, well, average, um, yeah, gram of, um, of soil, whether you have insecticides and pesticides, and so the, the 1970s version of farming, or even the 2001 Monsanto version of farming, you might have a thousand microbiota per gram. And somewhere like Burgundy, you have more like a billion microbiota per gram. And that billion versus a thousand means there's more stability, more robustness, because it's harder to disrupt the balance if you have more living things that are, you know, trying to exist in the same place. Mm -hmm. And so for us, I think, I think biodynamic, you know, forget the religious component where everyone's just excessive, but if you take it in a rational way, it's about treating the land as a living thing and making sure the plant is healthy. If you get healthy fruit, you get incredible wine, as Jean-Marie was just saying. Mm -hmm. It's all about the farming and getting great fruit and then the expression of terroir of the place comes out. The magic is, wow, it's not like, oh, I'm drinking a glass of Burgundy or grabbing a, you know, a, a glass of, uh, of wine from Gevrey-Chambertin. It's more specific than that. It's more meaningful than that. It has a different texture, it has different flavor, and you find, like music, it's something that you can connect with. Mm. And you know, mm -hmm. and you come to know something, it really becomes a more intimate experience that you're having when you have your meal and you share it with friends. Mm -hmm. And therefore, is more joy, more mm -hmm. happiness. And that's what uh, I find amazing about Jean Marie's wines. Mm -hmm. Last night, we had, uh, we had glasses of wine that were from 
pieces of land that were only a hundred meters apart. Feet, 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 yeah, feet apart, and they tasted really different. Yeah. And so that is that the the te, the terroir. That was shampoo and gula. Shampoo and, and gula. Yeah, and 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 he can describe them, but to me the shampoo was a more masculine flavor of wine, and and the gula was more delicate and precise. You know, maybe from the minerality in it. But, there but were, how is that possible? That only a hundred feet apart. De details, that's what matters, and uh, to resume really Burgundy in, in its entire picture, it's one of the most complex mosaic of subsoil uh, you can get in the world. Every 50 meters uh, you will get some texture changing of, of a subsoil. And uh, as a comparison between those two vineyards, despite the fact that they are 100 feet distant from each other, but the origin of the gulo, which is standing just a little bit higher than, than uh, uh, Champeau, and I'm, I'm talking about 30 feet difference, yeah. um, <coughs> it's uh, a vineyard with basically the origin of the name of gulo come from the gullies. When we have lots of rain uh, running from the forest, it's really draining and washing out the, the topsoil of his vineyard. Uh, and this vineyard is surrounded by a, a very little path, very small path, and it's, the water is drained after that by this path and never wash out the vineyard standing just below, which is shampoo. Then, uh, in terms of exposure, uh, Goulot will lose around 10 to 15 minutes of sun uh, compared to shampoo, but multiplicated by the amount of days it's uh, during the ripening season. It's definitely going to be a lot of details, which you can imagine through centuries, the, the rain coming from the forest, which has been totally modifying the, the soil of Goulot, but necessarily without modifying the soil of Champeau. Uh, 10 minutes sun variations every day, and then you just end up with very different wine. Hmm. Jean-Marie, you've told me, I think, well, we've only met twice, but I think both times you mentioned this idea that you consider yourself not so much a winemaker but a biologist. Yeah. Could you kind of explain that? <clears throat> I resume it a lot through the definition about uh, biology is science of life and analogy is science of wine. And it's so much more exciting to know about life in general than just wine. But to give a small explanation uh, uh, about uh, my way of thinking. It's, for example, thinking ab about the balance of my soil. And for example, nitrogen is a, is a natural component that we, 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 we get in, in the soil through some specific type of grass growing up. Then when we are plowing the soil, we are uh, putting the nitrogen na naturally back in, in the soil. But nitrogen is basically the vitamin C for the, for the natural yeast, for fermentation. So, for example, the era uh, of the 80s where herbicides was more uh, a common thing, people was destroying some grass, naturally rich in nitrogen, uh, and then they, when the, the, during the harvest they brought the, the fruits to uh, the winery, there was a lack of nitrogen in those, in those uh, fruits which means the, the yeast had difficulty to start the fermentation. So that's where the modern analogy 
provide a, 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 what I would call a mechanical answer by saying here is a bag of nitrogen, just tip it on top of a tanks uh, and then your yeast will be happy. But that's not the answer. The answer uh, has to be in the vineyard, not uh, during the winemaking. So that's why I think a lot of uh, answers to uh, our problems should be considered and thought about uh, our vineyard management, the vineyard practice. So it's all about the biology, it's about understanding every day what the sun, the rain, the wind, uh, having a reading not only through the vineyards but through the grass growing up on our soil. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's an old thing which makes the biology so much more important and that's why I was saying that the more you are a biologist, the more you understand uh, your, your location mm -hmm. and the less you need to be an, an analogist because uh, analogy is, is a, a degree of science you learn from school. So uh, for me, as I was saying earlier, I try to be as discreet as possible. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to put any analogy in my wine. I'm trying to put biology in my wine. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you explain a lot that you're here to interfere as little as possible. But um, last night you also spoke of the years where it's everything's happening the way it should and you feel like maybe you should be doing more, but you don't want to over-interfere. How do you how do you manage these decisions where your mind is telling you one thing but your heart's maybe telling you another? Yeah, it's a, it's it's definitely one of the most challenging and difficult thing because it it, it comes uh, I guess with experience and that's where it's uh, it's. Uh, the, the beauty of life of, of getting older, uh, you, you gain this wiseness uh, of this suggest to uh, understand that sometimes uh, doing more can just make it worse. And uh, for example, the vintage where we had a wonderful summer, the fruits would be very beautifully ripe which means that the potential of extractability of the wine will be intense and all the flavors and everything will naturally come together very easily. And uh, you know that you have this window of 10 days that is suddenly this crossroad about a full year of work in the vineyard and, and then the wine will be made. So the temptation to think, I should do this, I should do that, am I doing enough? Uh, is, is huge, but for some vintage, actually, uh, it's just uh, over-empowering mother nature, uh, and uh, you just make it too big, you, you just make it too much. Uh, so it demands uh, a certain confidence to actually walk out of the fermenting room, of the fermenting room and thinking, I should do nothing on these tanks today instead of go walking in and say I, I should do it because I only have 10 days to do something. Right, it takes more discipline to do less. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, last night we talked a little bit about this idea of intelligence versus intuition or that sixth sense. Yes. Um, and, and I loved how you said you connect to your intuition. Um, can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Like I asked you, do you get, like how do you develop intuition? And yes, it's experience, but you said something about sort of clearing your mind. Well, 
uh, I think sometimes it's just some other experiences in in life which can uh, really wake wake up on uh, once again make you realize about what's your daily life. And uh, for me, what was a, a real switch around uh, ten years ago, uh, I got uh, invited by my South African importers, and which at the end of a few days of tastings. We just went uh, on safaris just to watch some animals, and uh, after three hours uh, on game drive trying to 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 look for uh, any life, we suddenly arrived into a very small place which was the size of a football pitch, and the, the grass was so green and tidy, uh, it looked like it it was humanly looked after. But actually, in less than five minutes. We had bush pigs, uh, kudus, uh, rhinos coming, birds, and all the animals uh, around the area knew that the best grass of the, the area was just there, in, in that plot of lands. And for me, I thought, that's terroir. Mm -hmm. The animals understand terroir. And it's, it was really uh, a wake-up call for me. To, to rethink also, to look at uh, Burgundy and, and, and where I am, to think, I come, I've been studying at the wine school, I've been to the university, I've got all these degrees of science, but sometimes it's, you learn as much to, to look at what's going, on, uh, what's going on through the window than just watching uh, and understanding what's going on through a book. Mm. And uh, it's regaining this sensibility, these perceptions that our grandparents used to have. Uh, and, and Jerry has always been kind and generous to share historical bottles of Burgundy made by uh, our previous generations, uh, which are always a model of wines to us, made by people who, who didn't have the privilege to go to a, uh, even, not even wine school, but people to mm. go to school. Yeah, as a collector of and an affectionado of great wines from Burgundy, I've come to realize that the great wines come from winemakers that make good decisions. Mm. That winemaking is about decision making. And the key component to good decision making in life is intuition. Mm. Some people have a lot of it, some people have a little of it. And I think the winemakers that have a, a, a passion for it are connected to nature. And it appears to me that those who have that deep connection with nature and passion for the wine have more access to intuition. And hence the wine has a higher quality. Jean-Marie's wines from 2000, I've tasted every vintage from 2005 to 2016, and the quality is extraordinary. And the energy is associated with the quality. And so I think there's something happening in the vineyards that he's doing to produce this grapefruit, and he's, and he's consistent. So perhaps it's the lifestyle that Jean-Marie has chosen and the passion that gives him access to intuition coming from and nature. And his perception, because your perception is not, I am Jean-Marie Fourier, I'm going to make this wine. Every time you speak about it, you, you are the instrument of nature. Yes. You are only the instrument. And I think that perception allows you to be humble and to do the best you can, not for your own mind's sake, but for something larger. You know, what's interesting about that is, I think you're right, but it, it, the interesting thing is most of the winemakers don't really know how the wine's going to turn out exactly. Right. They have a feeling about it, but yeah. like but you didn't know how the 2012 can. was going to turn out, one of your greatest vintages, okay. and, and, and he's like, I don't know if it's going to be great or not. Okay. 
what, how can you have this great intuition about all this great decision making and still not even know how your wine is going to turn out? It's, it's a, that's what is a part of the challenge because from vineyard to bottling, uh, it's going to be around 1,000 different interventions or choices where you'll have three or four options in each of those choices. Mm. So the, the combinations are, are just endless. And uh, you, you, that's a, a frustrating job sometimes because uh, you never had the feeling that you've done always good uh, enough. Uh, you permanently feel unsatisfied with the feeling that I could have done better. But with this fine balance about would I, should I have done more or should I have done less? Uh, so it's, it's just this, this balance really with what the vintage has been, what the forecast has been, and, and, and uh, you only measure the result of, uh, of your uh, uh, success mm -hmm. uh, as the wine will age with time. But one of the things which for me has been important, and was, that was something I did not understood when I was much younger, uh, I, I remember hearing by the grandfathers to say, you do not own the land, the land own you. Mm. Uh, and as I'm getting older, I, re I, I totally understand what it means now. Uh, I, I, when I was young, I had this arrogance of thinking, yeah, it's my land, it's from my family. But mm. actually, um, I'm more somebody who is having the legacy of a 2,000 years history and some vineyards of 100 years and plus to just realize that my job is to uh, have had the legacy of an amazing uh, piece of land with an, an amazing complexity of life. We were talking about the bacteria of the soil, about uh, all the elements which makes one special. And my job is to preserve the integrity of my legacy mm. in, in uh, the perfect conditions and when I inherited it, and when I'm going to transmit it to my children to make sure that I will not have damaged that tool for the following generations mm. and, and to make sure that Burgundy will keep remaining, remaining where, what, it, what it is. Mm. Mm. How much do you owe the preceding generations, the grandfathers, for what you know and what you do? How much do we all owe the grandfathers who suffered and went uh, through terrible conditions? I, I, I think it's just... Uh, impossible to quantify how much we will owe them because the we look at today burgundy wine as a, a product which is a very social product but the history of wine has been has been amazing for the time and not such a long time ago uh, burgundy was uh, the, the wine sent it through the walls for the soldier to just give them courage uh, to, to go and fight, uh, then it's been a, a road and a path absolutely fascinating to see how the, the, the wine uh, today became such the, a social thing to bring and connect people together. Mm. Um, I've never, met, never imagined when I was going to take over the domain uh, that the, I would meet so many people around the world, so many wonderful people, and uh, so much friends for a bottle of wine. Mm. Uh, and uh, for me, that's this 
amazing evolution. And, and, and when you are so generous to share those old vintage, our grandparents would have never imagined that the, where those bottles was going to end up 50, 60, 80 years later and who they was going to be shared with. Mm. But it, it was made with, uh, by our grandparents with uh, just, I would say, a pure feeling from the heart, trying mm. to make the best as they could. But it was not made from the brain. It was really made with, with uh, emotions, with love for what they was doing. Mm. And, and uh, that's what for me is, is uh, so important to sort of preserve. And as a friend told me one day, uh, I think when, you, when you, you make your love, when you put love in what you're doing, you cannot go wrong. And I think that's what we had as a legacy mm -hmm. from our grandparents and we should not forget. Mm -hmm. uh, it has become very easy to, to, to see that now we make great money, great livings from our job. Uh, we, we, are, we live 10 times better than our grandparents, mm -hmm. but we should not see the profit first. Mm -hmm. We should preserve this love and passion for what we are doing that we had as an heritage from our grandparents. Yeah, someone once told me, um, one of my teachers said that love or affection is the highest form of intelligence because your perceptive state is open and you're able to perceive more. So I know a lot of smart people who make a lot of bad decisions because they don't have the perceptive quality that you need to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe love is a vehicle for higher perception and being able to make better decisions. I agree. I agree. Jean-Marie, with what you just said, um, for people who are listening who, um, who maybe don't know a lot about wine, I think wine can be intimidating, it can feel exclusive, but when I hear you speak about it, it's very simple. It's drink something you love with great friends and it's about an experience. Um, what would you say to people who, who feel intimidated or that wine has become about um, status or about exclusivity? Well, I'd probably say that wine should not be uh, something to be afraid of as often we are enjoying wine with food. You don't need anyone to influence you, to tell you what the food should taste like. Everybody has his own level of appreciation and will prefer some uh, dish more than some others. And that's how wine should be approached. You maybe not have the vocabulary to describe it at the beginning. You don't necessarily uh, have all the knowledge about the region it's coming from. But at least you have taste. Everybody has taste to say the most basic things, I like, I don't like. The road to wine, uh, like every passion, I, I like to call that a virus. Either you, you catch it or you don't catch it, but it can quickly become very addictive. Uh, but for me, the most important things where everything starts, and uh, it's wine is today uh, the, the, the way where everything is dematerialized where everything becomes virtual, wine is still reconnecting people all together. And for me, I think for the young generation, it's very uh, important, I think, to, to realize that wine is just like people. You, you have to meet a lot of them before finding your friends. So of course, the, the road to the wine world is not that easy. 
you'll have a lot of bad experiences, but when you have great experiences, just don't be afraid just to take a picture of that bottle, and which has been a, a great souvenir, and then after that, try to look for these bottles. Um, when I was 23, to cover, I didn't have money even to, to afford to buy wines from my neighbors. But it, it's been for me uh, a great joy and road and privilege to start by the uh, entry level wines. Uh, and, uh, under $30, uh, you can find some amazing wines. But uh, for me, it's very important to say that don't approach the wine world uh, with an intellectual dimension. These will come with time as you get older uh, and with your passion growing up, intellectual dimension will, will grow up. Come uh, and embrace the, the wine world with the idea, and, and that's uh, a, a very simple example I have. Uh, one day I got trapped in a question with somebody asking me, Jean-Marie, why, why a bottle of wine is 75 centiliters? And I, I couldn't really answer to it. And, and the person said to me, a bottle of beer is 33 centiliters. You drink it on your own. A bottle of wine is made of a size that you're not going to drink it on your own. Mm. It's already made of a size for you to share with other people. And, and, and wine for me is definitely as these uh, emotion uh, creations uh, where you can un un enjoy and meet new people, but it's just going to be uh, a long road and a long journey made of probably more bad experiences than great experiences. But when you have some great experiences, my God, they can just wake up some amazing souvenir from your childhood about some flavors, aromatics, uh, and, and stuff you, you used to, to know when, uh, and you haven't found, or you have forgotten for 30 or 40 years. And, uh, Will you give an example? Last night you gave an example of drinking, uh, what, what was the bottle, 1915? 1915. Uh, Clouvoujo that Jerry kindly shared uh, with us. And uh, for the first time ever, out of 40 years time, it suddenly reminded me, uh, just smelling that glass of wine, when I, I was five years old, riding my bicycle in the garden of my grandma, and uh, falling in an iris flower, and that strong smell of an iris, which I've completely forgotten for 40 years, mm. suddenly uh, jump out in that glass of wine, uh, which was uh, from a bottle mm. of nearly 100 years old. If you think about civilization, you have to think about some of the great human in, uh, contributions. I mean, it was most likely women in Mexico that helped domesticate Tisanite into maize, which was the basis of all the great Mesoamerican cultures, Mayans, Toltecs, Aztecs. In China, the domestication of rice. In, uh, in Europe, the domestication of barley. And making wine. These are the things that led to greater social connectivity and the beginnings of civilization. And when you drink an old bottle like the 1915 Clos de Bougeot, we can see the potential of the terroir, of the vineyard, and of what the winemaker was able to do long after his lifetime. There's no doubt that everyone associated with the bottle of 1915 Clos de Bougeot is no longer with us. Yet we can enjoy that with great pleasure and appreciate these people that worked so hard with passion a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And it's a special gift because while Jean-Marie is making great wines today, uh, he may not live long enough to see the full potential of his great wines. Mm -hmm. It may be a long time. And when you drink something like that, 
that was so memorable. Uh, it gives fantastic pleasure. And so you're creating something, Jean-Marie, for something that's for your children and your children's children and people you don't even know. Yeah, yeah. And what a great thing that we should all do as part of being global citizens. What can we do that we create that, that outlasts our lifetime? Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing to share. I love wine at the end of a day where you're in the back country with your friends and you're struggling, you're having a, you know, a, a, an amazing experience, um, but you're also putting a lot of effort into it. Right. Or, or when you're like with you, when we're, you know, up skiing, you know, and you're on your board and we're out there and we get together and have a great meal to celebrate the day. It's like the yeah. bow on the package. Well, and it's a good thing to bring up because uh, in my life, I talk about my story and sometimes because I was so focused on my goal of becoming an Olympian and realizing my dream, quite honestly, along the way I would sometimes forget the pleasure aspect. I would forget to have fun. I would forget to celebrate. And I think it's, I think what we're talking about today is it's about pleasure and it's about enjoying and about experiencing life together and sharing life together. And that's something that I always have to remind myself of and to have wine and to have friends who help me mm-hmm. re- always re- remember um, is really important. But it's, it's funny you're saying that because a couple of minutes ago I was just thinking exactly that. When I, when I was younger, I was trying to make a great wine, uh, but without necessarily thinking, I'm gonna give make some wine to give pleasure to people. Mm. Now I'm I'm not trying to make great wines. I'm I'm just trying to enjoy my life, and and, and uh, my reward is giving pleasure to people. And and for me, that's what is a real achievement. But I think it comes with time also to realize that because. Maybe a part of the way we are formatted, coming from uh, the school system, the university, we, 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 we have to prove something to ourselves, yes. first of all, when, when we are young, yes. and, uh, uh, for the road of a success. But then, with time and maturity after that, you, you realize that it's not the entire thing, uh, and, and happiness, joy and balance, and, and giving happiness to the others, this is priceless. Well said. <laughs> What about the dangers of winemaking? <laughs> oh, uh, You've lost a, f- a family member. My grandfather, of my, on my father's side. Uh, my father lost his dad when he was 14 years old because as the vats are fermenting day and night, uh, you have to go and survey your vats uh, uh, also at night because the vats, while they're fermenting, generate calories. And as the temperature of that got higher and higher, above a certain level of temperature, uh, the, vet, the yeast will die by an excess of temperature before finishing the alcoholic fermentation process. So you have to go and punch the cap, which is basically uh, pushing the berries down at the bottom of a tank uh, by hand. Uh, and each vat will produce 10 times its volume in carbon dioxide. So one cubic meter of grapes will make 10 cubic meters of CO2. So the uh, atmosphere in the fermenting room is uh, very hard to breathe. And uh, when you make such a, an effort with, uh, with a very low level of oxygen, so you can easily pass out. And if you're on your own in the fermenting room at night and you suddenly pass out above your, your vat, you fall in it. And uh, after 
30 seconds, you lose consciousness. And uh, unfortunately, that's what happened to uh, the grandfather of my father. Uh, but it's not been the only one, it's been happening to several people uh, also. Um, it's happening less and less uh, uh, since 15, 20 years, because bearing in mind that Burundi was not a luxury product uh, at all, uh, people couldn't afford having a, a new fermenting room. But as the, the wines of Burundi have become more and more popular, people have been able to make new investments, uh, I'd say probably around the last 15 or 18 years. A lot of people have uh, invested in a new fermenting room with new security uh, system where you cannot fall into the tanks anymore. Mm -hmm. And harnesses too, right? And, and harnesses, also. yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. you, you had a close call too, right? Yeah, in 2001, in the old fermenting room, I, I had the same story at night. I was going to uh, fall and my foot slipped. I was standing on the edge of, of a wooden bat. Uh, on top of it, and it's it's very narrow uh, on top of it. So if either I was gonna fall in the vat or four meters behind me, and I ended up falling just on the edge on, on this vat and ended up breaking my back. But uh, but uh, you learn from your mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. <laughs> Better to break your back than to than possible. go in exactly. <laughs> and you mentioned Christmas and working with your family. What what is that like now? Uh, well, the, the most difficult for me is, is trying to have a conversation with my dad, which is not about work at Christmas. Right. It still is the case because it, it's all his life. He's been there forever. Uh, my father has never been on holiday in his life. He is scared to be bored. His entire life has been uh, his vineyards, his tractors, been, been, been around. So uh, for him, his entire life is work. And uh, it's true that sometimes I'm missing those conversations uh, about being able to speak about other things, but it's a treat and a privilege to have your, your father uh, aging side by side next to you, uh, even though you have to, to talk about work on the day of Christmas. Yeah. Well, and then on that same note, you are someone who has passions beyond just your work that, that you do. How big a part of um, your life is flying? And last night we talked a lot about like leaning into fears and what is your, your perception of fear? And Well, I think that's what I've, uh, I, I still fly today uh, as a hobby. And uh, it's always about trying to repush your limits because uh, and I, that's probably what's the other side of, of, uh, of uh, getting older as the, the years goes by. It's very easy to stay in a frame and not exploring any more outside of this frame. And it's about that fear about uh, why should I put myself in danger or doing this or doing that. I don't know if we should call that consciousness. But actually, when you are really pushing a bit your limit, the proudness you, you, you get about suddenly feeling, I was not just restrained to what I know, but I can do more than that. And for me, the, the, the great things I've learned about flying is the discipline. Uh, and it's not a thing you, you learn in, in, in the winemaking discipline, but to, to fly, you have to be disciplined in what you're doing. So uh, that's, it's been really a real bonus and profit and definitely participate to my balance. And I mean, uh, I can't be a, an happier person because 
I, from Monday to Friday, I do a job by passion, and I can have on my second passion during weekend, which is to go and fly. And, and funnily enough, when it's the weekend, I'm not the only grower who is flying in Burgundy, so we, we often catch up. We are six, seven growers on the airfield of New St. George, and uh, we never speak about wine. Awesome. We always talk about helicopters, aircraft, aerobatics, all sorts of things, but we don't talk about work. And I bet that's important for your mind. It is. It really is. But uh, what's well, uh, nice, it's, yeah, it's suddenly just having this other hobby where you just forget your, your uh, weekly work. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Everybody has his own elements. For me, air is, is my element, and uh, when I'm up there, I forget everything else. But what about the discipline part? Because you, you would have to be extremely disciplined to be doing what you're doing yeah. with flying. Yeah, yeah. So what has flying taught you about discipline? That Well, not, not only just the chronology of the flight, but every pilot, for example, knows that 75% of the flight is prepared in your head on the ground before you're actually going to go into the plane. So when it comes to making wine, it's really, uh, for what Jerry was explaining earlier, uh, helping you to make those, to anticipate those decisions about winemaking uh, in your head, yeah. which after that give you this confidence. In, in an aircraft, if you don't prepare your flight before, you will be submitted to the speed of the aircraft, and then after that everything gets accumulated, and you become uh, heavily stressed in the cockpit. Mm. Uh, while if you've been prepared before, uh, everything has been anticipated and everything is happening smoothly. And I think it, you can really translate it to the winemaking process. If you have anticipated uh, and, and prepared a lot of things in your head uh, in advance, then as the harvests are coming, everything is already, cl already clear in your mind. Uh, and you don't feel that pressure or stress, mm -hmm. which brings you to make mistakes. Preparation and mm -hmm. anticipating things in advance. It's, that's a huge thing. You uh, Really, the first part of this podcast, we've been talking about uh, the Olympics and Olympians and their stories. And preparation is a, is a huge common theme that everyone brings up. What about global warming? What effects is that having on your land and the wine? Well, at the day of today, it's true that I call myself the generation of global warming. So we have been the beneficiary of, of uh, better ripeness in the fruit than our grandparents used to have. The only problem is we cannot stop it at mm -hmm. the moment if we don't take drastic uh, resolution. And uh, it starts to become new challenges uh, for us. It's, it's about how am I going to keep a drinkability to my wines? Because the, the wines are going to start to be uh, with the sun, bigger, with more structure, less acidity, less freshness. Uh, and it's definitely a, a, a big issue and challenge. And being in Burgundy under uh, the wine region, which got the strongest regulation in the world, there's many things you, you, you cannot explore or change. So on the canopy, for example, if you want to do any modifications, we have the regulations that we cannot modify. So I think the law uh, will have to evolve for us to, get, to allow us, people who are working with vineyards, to make some experiment about how can we sort of try to reduce 
uh, as a final result in the wine. But at the end of the day, it, it's definitely going to be, uh, what I could call in French, prise de conscience. People are, it's everybody who has to make that step about trying to have uh, an impact and a footprint uh, uh, in, in order to reduce that, that, uh, that process, which is really uh, getting crazy. To give you a small scale about what uh, global warming has been an impact for us, over the last 30 years, uh, the, the average temperature during the growing season, so between basically spring and summer, is 1.3 degrees higher than 30-35 years ago. It doesn't mean much, but it's like if we would have transferred or moved our land of 100 miles in the south. So you're losing the character. I mean, when Jean-Marie talks about ripeness, he doesn't talk about just ripeness of the fruit. He's talking about ripeness of the skins, ripeness of the seeds, ripeness of the stems. And so, and, the, and, and, and getting all of that in balance is what his wines are about. And, and with this climate change, the extremes are certainly changing the character of the wines. I'm saving all of my old ones because in 20 years, the wines may be very different. And that's, it may lose some of that sense of terroir that we've come to love. And that's scary. Uh, Jean-Marie, what is your definition of success? Oh, I can fit it in just one word, happiness. Uh, for me, uh, I think it, it's not about how demanded would be the wine. It's not about how much money would be on my bank account. I, I think for me what is priceless is, is just having balance and happiness in life. So uh, I, I sort of... Uh, I've reached that level, actually, from that stage I've stopped trying to convince myself and trying to convince other people, but just trying to remain who I am. Mm. And what wisdom do you know now, do you have now, that you wish you could turn around and tell younger Jean-Marie Fourier? Oh, that's a good, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm not a man of regrets. Uh, I've always assumed my choices. Uh, so uh, it, that's why it, it's going to be a bit difficult for me to answer to this question. But uh, I've, what's been really for me a real in, in, in influence when I was working in Oregon, uh, uh, I met this, this friend and we had a few uh, that night and it was outside. Uh, and uh, Jim Carrey from the Amiel Valley Vineyards said to me one night, he said to me, my friend, don't forget that a lion who tried to be another lion is nothing else than just a monkey. So what he said to me is, don't try to be someone else. Don't try to copy anyone else. Don't try to uh, just be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. And from, that's probably... Uh, the, the, the phrase which has really been uh, influencing me a lot and given me the confidence to be the person I am today is just remaining true to, to myself. For everyone who now is so excited to go drink wine <laughs> and they're on a budget, you know, maybe $30 and they want to know how to start learning more and tasting more, how do you, what would you say? 
Um, How to get started. Don't be afraid to, to try experiences. Don't be afraid to, to, to read a bit. Uh, I have been challenging several wine critics about changing the scoring system uh, of Burgundy because we basically have three categories or three levels. Uh, we have what we call the Bourgogne Rouge or, or Bourgogne Blanc. Uh, Bourgogne Blanc from Chardonnay, Bourgogne Rouge made with Pinot Noir. Uh, which would be easily bottled below uh, 30 uh, US. And then we have uh, Village, Premier Cru, Grand Cru. And I, I always uh, ask the question to most of the critics to rechange the scale of 100 points. Uh, as we are famous through the, uh, as we know very well through the, the, the school system A, B, C, D, why not making 100 points A for Grand Cru, 100 points B for Premier Cru, 100 points C for Village, and 100 points D for uh, the Bourgogne. And uh, that would be a new scale of, of understanding for people who cannot afford buying uh, those expensive bottles uh, yet, and, and, and uh, to discover that when you're young, what can I get? And to, through the guidance of what I'm going to read, uh, why can't I get an, a great 94 points D of this great Bourgogne Rouge, which is below 30 uh, US dollar? But the, the system doesn't exist yet. I hope things will change at some stage. But uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't be afraid to try experiences. And as I was saying earlier, take pictures. You, you'll, you'll have a lot of bad experiences. But for me, what will be also very important to say to people is don't put too much pressure on the wine. You will enjoy a great bottle with some friends, with your girlfriends, with your boyfriend, uh, with connecting with people. And that's going to be suddenly this environment of people all together where in, in a good mood, good time, good uh, moments, that this wine suddenly you will discover there are some great wines uh, which will complement these great moments. And what bottle of wine can I buy from you at $30? Which one would it be? I, I, I do a Bourgogne Rouge, okay. uh, which is entry level, okay. which uh, is uh, below $30. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much, Jean-Marie. Jerry, thank you for helping co-host this podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. And you're coming on for another one where it's just you and me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank okay. you. Thank, thank you. you. That was The Art of Living Extraordinarily, defined by Jean-Marie Fourier. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe. Be sure to rate us on iTunes, and I would love to read your comments too. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time.